0: Hello, and welcome to the first installment of the newly minted SOF Heyman Bookshelf, formerly the New Books at the Hayman Center panel podcast. Content for the SOF Heyman Bookshelf is drawn from the New Books in the Arts and Sciences panel discussion series at Columbia University, which celebrates recent work by Columbia faculty in the arts and sciences. I'm your host, Konstantin Lignos. This episode... Celebrating Recent Work by Susan Bernofsky is drawn from a panel brought together virtually on October 21, 2021, to discuss Bernofsky's recently published book, Clairvoyant of the Small, The Life of Robert Walser. Susan Bernofsky, who calls herself an accidental biographer, is an associate professor of writing at Columbia University School of the Arts and director of the Literary Translation Program at Columbia's MFA Writing Program. She has translated over 20 books, including eight works of fiction by Robert Walser, as well as novels and poetry by a number of other writers, including Franz Kafka and Hermann Hesse. In this book, the first English-language biography of the German-speaking Swiss modernist writer, Bernofsky situates Walser in his early 20th century European context to elaborate a more nuanced portrait of and I quote from Walser's piece entitled Job Application a person who deems everything small and modest to be beautiful and pleasing and to whom all that is big and exciting is fearsome and horrid end quote so who is this writer who WG Sebald dubbed a clairvoyant of the small let's listen
1: the general idea that people have about him and This is really, there's a whole mystique around his work. There's a, he has a certain cult following among a lot of a lot of readers. And the whole idea of that this is based on is Robert Walzer as intentional outsider, as somebody who, on purpose, turned his back on the literary marketplace, on the whole economic side of, of artistic creation and said, you know, not for me. I'm going to be. Off here, you know, pretending to be like an early 19th century traveling journeyman strolling through quaint alleyways. And this, was a, this, this kind of came back to bite him because he, he, he wrote about figures like this in his work a lot, in his early work especially. And this image that he created stuck to his own persona and people's understanding of him. And it also, among other things, caused his work to be poo-pooed a bit in his lifetime by, by some, some readers, while others, on the other hand, you know, adored him, like Kafka, for example, just loved his work, really loved his work. But I discovered, you know, in the course of preparing to write the biography and then writing it, that really he was trying very hard to have mainstream success and had got a roadblock after roadblock put in, in his way. And so his, his life, his artistic life, is at the same time a story of struggle and so the persona that he kind of got got sort of backed into this light-hearted ne'er-do-well refuser of the marketplace is really something that happened to him more that that he chose it and so there's this interesting tension throughout his work i i really learned about robert walser as a businessman negotiating with publishers trying to figure out how to make his work marketable, even though aesthetically it was always sort of on the very edge, right next to the precipice of what might possibly be marketed. But there are things that just as simple as if he had picked a different publisher for his early novels, he would have had a very different career. He picked a publisher out of personal loyalties, a personal connection, Meanwhile, the um, publisher who plucked the young Thomas Mann and the young Hermann Hesse out of oblivion and turned them into major best-selling writers, that publisher, Samuel Fischler, also wanted to publish Walzer and was courting him. Um, but because of the personal loyalties that, that he had gotten sort of socially maneuvered into, because of that, he said no to the publisher who would have given him the career he wanted. And so learning about his story, there's case after case of just saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that. But he made the choices that he made resulted in being the writer that we love. And I end my book on a question that I, I felt it would be too presumptuous to actually answer. And the question is, is it possible that the Robert Walzer, that a Robert Walzer, without these experiences of struggle and failure would have become the writer who is so meaningful and powerful to us. I hope the answer to that isn't, well, yeah, writer has to struggle. I don't, I don't actually believe that's true, but in his particular case, one wonders. His late work especially, which is the work that I care about the most deeply, I think, is just a one big virtuoso, Chronicle of failure, in a sense, and he celebrates it rebelliously, beautifully.
0: Responding to Bernofsky's question with a descriptive story of his train ride through the Alps was Mark Wunderlich, the author of the award-winning collection of poetry entitled The Anchorage, published in 1999. Wunderlich's poems, interviews, reviews, and translations have appeared in journals such as Slate, The Paris Review, The New York Times Magazine, Poetry, Yale Review, Fence and Tin House, and his poems are widely anthologized. He has taught at Stanford and Barnard College, and in the graduate writing programs at Columbia University, Ohio University, San Francisco State, and Sarah Lawrence. Wunderlich is now the director of the Bennington Writing Seminars at Bennington College in Vermont. Here is Mark Wunderlich's experience with this, quote, most singular and strange writer, end quote, Robert Valser.
2: This summer, I found myself on a train going through the Swiss Alps. The scenery was just as expected. Cows with collars and bells, grazing in meadows, slopes with heap of rubble from landslides, prim villages, chalets with window boxes, the occasional factory that looked so clean I thought that could only possibly produce aspirin or vaccines. As the train passed through the valleys and crossed bridges, I would sometimes see farmers out raking hay into windrows on improbably steep slopes. To say that all of it was beautiful is to state the obvious, but the experience was most notable for what was happening inside the train car. For three hours, I was the only passenger in the car. On a loudspeaker, a voice announced in three languages, this train ride had been designated a UNESCO World Heritage Experience, and only the only train ride to have that imprimatur. We were informed of its specialness. It was August, and the tourists had not yet returned to Switzerland. In my week there, I met no other Americans, heard no Chinese or Russian being spoken on the streets, Groups of hikers could be seen booted and toting rucksacks striding along trails, but I surmised that these were the Swiss themselves and their immediate neighbors, and not those of us from the outside. My companion on this train and elsewhere on this trip was the clairvoyant of the small, Susan Bernofsky's brilliant biography of Robert Valser. I will admit that the scene revived for my attention and won and the book stayed mostly unopened on my lap, but in coming days, I kept re-entering the book and the world of this most singular and strange writer. The book's title, borrowed from W.G. Sebald, offers its two operative words of clairvoyant and small, and both offer their own internal contradictions. What we learn in Susan's book is how, given the very real constraints of money, social class, health, and social connection, one artist managed to produce a profoundly original body of work. It's a story of devotion that speaks to an inner connection to writing and literature, to the interior life, but also to the powers of observation. Falser's fictions are always looking outward at the streets of Berlin, at coffee houses, at amusements, at the lives of servants, at the newspaper, and at the world he spent hours and hours traversing by foot. He also presents an interior life to us in his ironic and often humorous way. And this is a quote, how uncertain, how difficult people make one another's lives, he writes in Food for Thought from Berlin Stories here in Susan's translation. And never were truer words spoken. Inside the train, there was no one to challenge or support the assertion, I was alone. And as I continued to stare out the window at one of the most staggering landscapes in the world, I began to feel a bit like a ghost. Was any of this real? Where was everyone? Why was no one else here? After an hour, I heard the hiss of the electric door opening and the rattle of a trolley as an employee of the Swiss railways pushed a cart down the aisle. When he reached my seat and looked up and I saw the man was dressed in a traditional embroidered Swiss shirt a costume meant to invoke wholesomeness of the summers on the Alm, of milk pails and chocolate and bright Swiss air. Sandwich, he asked, cafe sandwich? And when I declined, he resumed his trek to the next empty car, his sandwiches promising to go uneaten. It was a scene I think now worthy of Walzer, who was so drawn to the small encounters of dailiness from which he created his great work. In reading this biography, I'm also struck by the real miracle of the existence of Walser's work at all. In many ways, his life was not a dramatic one as we learn. In fact, much of it, as it is for all of us at times, a series of dull interludes, working as an insurance clerk, living in an asylum, walking and walking alone in all weather. But that is the contradiction at the center of the lives of writers. The external life is what one sees, but in the inner life is, while writing and thinking where one lives. This too is what we learn about in Clairvoyant of the Small, that the best writers find ways of shaping their lives so that their inner worlds can live and thrive. I finished reading the biography one night in an unlikely place, which was the bed, a bed once occupied by Rainer Maria Rilke. For the past few years, I have immersed myself in the work of this poet, written in the decades preceding and following the First World War. This is the literature that describes, in part, a lost world. A contemporary of Walzer, Rilke lived a much different life, one that he created with the ingenuity of his work, but also with his great social gifts, which he deployed as the perpetually charming guest. I was in a remote village in Switzerland called Zolio, where Rilke had spent five months as a guest in a hotel, a hotel that remains almost unchanged since Rilke's visit there 103 years ago, down to the furniture in the rooms. From this bed, not the most comfortable, I reached the moment of Walser's demise, one of the loneliest and most poignant deaths I can think of, collapsing alone in the snow, and which was documented with a blurry, almost Sebaldian photo that never fails to sadden me and even to shock me. I'm grateful to Susan Bernofsky for her scholarship, her ample gifts as a translator, her thorough and humane work that has given us this insight into the life of the smallest giant of German literature.
0: Again, that was Mark Wunderlich, Toward the end of Walser's life, he was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia, his medical records indicating that, quote, the patient confessed hearing voices, end quote. He was institutionalized until his death in 1956. During the Q&A portion of the event, an attendee asked Brnofsky about Walser's institutionalization and whether she thinks Walser could have been saved from the asylum. Here is Bernofsky's answer on navigating the line between fetishizing his mental illness that is using it to explain his writing and glossing over it. Take a listen.
1: As long as I have been studying Volzo's work, this has been a huge question. Did he have to go into the asylum? I had a lot more thoughts about that than I wound up writing, among other things, just because who am I to speculate about someone's mental health at great length based on, a diagnosis from 100 years ago. Also, you know, as I write in the book, diagnostic frameworks have changed so much and understanding of what the disease schizophrenia even is have changed a great deal. There was a period when when I was first making trips to Switzerland in the late 80s and 1990s, that was a period where there was a lot of indignation in the Walzer community about his having been institutionalized you know this the sense the asylum industrial complex came and got him and took him so i went i also like everybody else felt that because there had been an earlier stage of laws of reception in the 70s and 80s where people were you know writing books about like let's let's use the the framework of mental illness to 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 explain his writing which is just like, oh, no, please. Um, so, the you know, backlash to that. Come on, he wasn't sick. We're all a little weird. I was a little surprised from reading the accounts. You know, I read his medical record talk about invasion of somebody's privacy in, retro, in retrospect to really discover how ill he was, how much he did struggle. From what I had heard people talking about in the 90s okay he wasn't really hallucinating they probably just forced him to say that you know they broke him down until he he said it but in fact from reading his medical record it seems there you know many people said from many different points of view yes he struggled with serious hallucinations for a long time now if he had been living in the 21st century it's quite possible that there are psychotropic drugs that would have helped him and you know would have put him in a quite different state but I think that he did need looking after I also remember hearing people being really indignant you know that his sister must have done this to him why did she not just take care of him like like a loving sister should. He's really it was really quite a handful and I think her defending her own life against the imposed responsibility of making caretaker of her brother be her job for the rest of her life, you know, I I get that. And so it just seemed like he got backed in this into this corner of needing to be institutionalized because he didn't have good other options. It seemed to me, to make sense in retrospect, unfortunately. He could have gotten out. I think that in later life, he might have gotten out, but after a certain point, he was of a certain age, and to be you know, in your 60s 100 years ago was different from being in your 60s now. That was older than it is now. After a certain point, I think he would have had trouble taking care of himself.
0: Now, we'll hear from Annie Pfeiffer, an assistant professor of Germanic languages at Columbia University. Annie's research and teaching interests focus on 19th and 20th century German literature and culture, literary and political theory, the Frankfurt School, aesthetics, visual and material culture, and, most recently, the intersection of modernism and fascism. She is currently completing her first monograph on modernist practices of collecting. Here, Annie Pfeiffer talks about the challenge of disentangling lore, that is, stories about writers from the actual persona of the writer. Let's listen.
3: In addition to producing their own stories, writers often get rise to stories about themselves, lore, which contributes to their persona as writers. It can often be difficult to disentangle these stories. As an Auslan or Swiss person who lived most of my life abroad, I always felt naturally drawn to Robert Balzer, himself a kind of outsider, who even after returning to Switzerland from Berlin seemed to be a sort of itinerant nomad. During some lonely moments while spending uh, my postdoc in Bern, I took solace in the fact that Balzer, my compatriot had had similar impressions of Switzerland's picturesque but evasive capital city. But what kept me coming back to Balzer after many years was the community of people that read and loved him, the admirers and fans, if you will, People like Susan Bernofsky, Jonathan Franzen, Ben Lerner, Walter Benjamin, and W.G. Seewald from whom we get Bernofsky's title. As we learn in Bernofsky's beautiful new biography, this fandom arose early with people like Kafka who took great delight in reading Balzer's pieces aloud to Max Brod, Kafka's future biographer. And in some ways it seems fitting, to me at least, that this writer, who sometimes lived in desperate isolation, should have also produced a community of readers and fans, often completely unbeknownst to Walzer himself. Like many literary geniuses, his persona became part of his story. In 2019, the artist Thomas Hirschhorn created an interactive 86 day long Robert Balzer installation in Biel, Switzerland, Balzer's hometown. It was a sprawling structure covered in DIY banners and spray painted texts. Are all Balzer fans, in some sense, super fans? I wondered as I glimpsed the massive sign, Robert Balzer, love you forever from the train station. It was visible from all around the countryside. <laughs> it's hard to imagine this kind of homage to Balzer's contemporaries, like Thomas Mann or Hermann Hesse. When I first met Susan Bernofsky in 2017, it was at a Walzer conference in Bern that I had co-organized with Reto Zorg, the director of the Robert Walzer Center. The subject of the conference was Walzer's short story, Der Spaziergang, or The Walk, which plays an important role in Susan's biography. And it actually coincided, as we realized, uh, with the 100th year anniversary of its publication but in a remarkable essay for our collected volume bernofsky describes the difficult task of translating in the footsteps of the poet and translator christopher middleton and i wanted to quote from her essay because i think it really resonated with me and she i think in doing this evokes the um the sort of horrifying image of Walzer's solitary death in the snow while on his walks, and she writes, quote, translating is like walking through deep snow that another person has already walked through. Every translation retraces another writer's footsteps. This time I was following in a double track. I wonder if we could see Bernofsky's biography as another kind of walking through deep snow, but instead of Walser's words, she painstakingly retraces his ambling footsteps after the snow begins to melt and his tracks shrink before vanishing completely. With Walser, who destroyed many of his letters and manuscripts and had more than 65 known addresses. I love that you included the index of all his addresses in the back of your um, biography. This is no small feat. As Bronowski herself points out, there are many gaps. So I'd be interested to know a little bit more about the relationship between translating and biography. To what extent does Brnofsky's task as a translator inform her task as a biographer? There is a subtle and ingenious way, I think, that Brnofsky inhabits Walzer's own mind in the intimate way only a translator can. But at the same time, she always lets him speak for himself, whether it's through his letters or his often autobiographically inflected stories. And she lays out her approach in the introduction, she says, she writes, the stories I tell about Balzer's life are interspersed throughout this book with discussions of his most important works and the place they stake out for him in the literary canon. And I think the emphasis on stories in the plural is key to her interpretive framework, which resists overarching metanarratives and letting the work of Balzer himself guide our way as much as possible. So Bernofsky's biography is a profoundly Balzerian approach to Balzer, mining the details with clairvoyance and judiciousness, but without judgment and generalization. Although she sheds light on many of the mysteries surrounding his life, Bernofsky lets the aura of Balzer, the author, remain a slightly shadowy figure who surprises us just as we thought we figured out who he is. And there were many surprises in the book that I myself didn't know. For instance, I didn't realize that he had actually been a proud soldier in World War I, defending Swiss Swiss neutrality in World War I. But I think most importantly, Bernofsky doesn't dwell on or fetishize his mental decline. Instead, she presents him as an agent in his own life. Bernofsky's Walzer is an ambitious literary artist troubled by financial and mental difficulties, which were only heightened by all the geopolitical crises that were occurring. Even later, as his mental illness becomes acute, Balzer continues to publish until he's transferred to, uh, in 1933, to another asylum against his will. So it might be tempting to conclude, as many have done, that Balser's mental health is in some way connected to his ever-shrinking handwriting. In in his now famous microscripts, the hundreds of tiny paper slips covered in millimeter-high script that were found after Walzer's death. However, I think, again, Bernofsky paints a more complex picture. She notes, for Walzer, writing small became particularly appealing when the thrift inspired by his fear of poverty made the conservation of resources align with his desire for privacy in this instinctual gesture of self-preservation. Ever the conscientious biographer, Bernofsky makes an effort to disentangle Balzer's own story from those recounted by others. And here too, I think Bernofsky's own path as a writer and translator informs her humility towards the story subject. A gifted storyteller in her own right, Bernofsky is always aware that she is telling stories rather than a single story. As Walter Benjamin, another avid reader and fan of Balzer observes, Geschichte or history is always made up of Geschichten, or stories in the plural.
0: And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Susan Bernofsky and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was celebrating recent work by Susan Bernofsky. The title of her new book is Clairvoyant of the Small, The Life of Robert Valser. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time.